Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tates Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. So the last 15 weeks uh, have been some of the most bizarre, difficult, angering, confusing, frustrating, at times enjoyable, but for sure revealing weeks that I for sure have experienced in my 47 years of life. So many emotions, so many feelings, so many perspectives wrapped up in what has been a tumultuous 2020. I told the first service that if you want to get a glimpse of 2020, you need to spend some time with Mark and Lisa Randall. Uh, Friday night, Keaton had to go have his appendix removed because he had appendicitis. So they've had a horrible month. And if anybody has had a microcosm of 2020, it's been the Randalls. But those global headlines that we see, they don't even begin to tell the internal and personal stories that we all struggle with. Over the last three weeks, Robert has tried to capture this in his groaning sermon series, the creation's groaning, the children of God's groaning, and the groaning of God himself. And this morning, I thought I'd take an Old Testament passage that gives us a narrative of what happens when God hears the groans of his people. What does he do? How does he act? And so that's what we have before us. This is a very familiar passage to many of you. If you have never heard this passage preached, one of the, one of the ways it's applied a lot is, is prayer. Because in this passage is a remarkable framework for praying. King Jehoshaphat says, are, God, are you not? God, have you not? And God, will you not? Appealing to the character of God, appealing to the works of God, and appealing to the will of God. That's a great way to pray. If you struggle to pray, just offer back to God his nature. Claim his works over creation and then ask for his will to be done on the earth. It's a great way to pray. That's here in this passage. This passage is also a continuation of the theme of the book of Second Chronicles, which is found in verse seven of, uh, verse 14 of chapter 7, which we're all familiar with. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then will I hear from heaven and heal their land, forgive their sins, that sort of thing. And the book of Chronicles unfolds in that way. How did the people of God actually do that, seek his face? And how did the people of God not do that and flee from his presence? Well, here in 2 Chronicles, we have a very clear story of King Jehoshaphat leading the people into battle in a very strange way, and we'll see that in a second. But here's the message, and this is where we're going to land in application. Fear not and stand firm. That's the clarity of the message. Okay, but let's pull some, before we apply that idea to our situation, let's, let's pull some principles and observations out of this passage. First, you should notice the presence of spiritual leadership in this passage. From the top, the king, 
Verse 5. Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem and prayed. From the top down, the leader in Judah was humbling himself to seek God's face. No pretense, no divisiveness, no blame shifting, no blame casting, just the apex leader of a nation humbling himself to pray. Next, you see the prophets and the priests. Verse 14, the spirit of the Lord came on this prophet and priest, Jehaziel, and he says, and what he does is lead the people to seek the face of God. And what you need to see here is in Israel, God set up the government of Israel with three branches, conveniently. A prophet, a priest, and a king. And as they worked together to rule and lead Israel, they would find God's blessing. Here is a great example. There's not many in scripture of it working that well. Here's a good one. The prophets, the priests, and the kings all bowing their heads, seeking the Lord's face. But it wasn't just the positional leaders. Look at verse 13. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord. Look, with their little ones, their wives, and their children, the fathers and mothers were spiritually leading their families towards humility and seeking the face of God. So from the top down, the people of God were being led to humble themselves and seek the face of God. Verse 18 summarizes it. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord and worshiped him. Is this not what our country needs? Is this not what our land needs? Is this not what our world needs? As leaders, men and women using their gifts, their calling, their positions, their platforms, their resources, their energy to bow down and stand before the Lord in humility and ask him to act. That's first observation. Second observation, notice the presence of fear. Verse three, then Jehoshaphat, the king, was afraid. And he set his face to seek the Lord. I love that the scriptures tell us this. Such a picture of this great king's humanity, yet his courage to lead. You've heard it said before, haven't you? Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is acting when you are afraid. Let me say that again. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is acting when you are afraid. We're all afraid. Jehoshaphat acted even in his fear. Look at verse 15 and 17. Twice the prophet says to the people, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Why did he have to say that twice? Because they were afraid. It wasn't just one army coming after them. It wasn't two armies. It was three armies, all with their resources and their, and their sights set to destroy Judah. They had every right to be afraid. If we understood what was happening in our world and the spiritual forces of evil that were around us, we would be very, very afraid. Not afraid that we'd lose our rights, not afraid that we'd lose our health, not afraid that we'd lose our money, not afraid that we might uh, lose our reputation, but the very fear of losing our soul and losing a generation that will not hope in God. Fear in the face of a strong, resolute, resourced, and aggressive enemy is a right and human response. And we see it here. They were afraid. Verse 12, Jehoshaphat prays, O our God, 
Will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. What a courageous prayer of a man who was afraid. However, their fear did not paralyze them. Third observation, notice the courageous call to stand firm. Verse nine, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you. For your name is in this house, and we will cry out to you, and you will hear and save. What a prayer, right? No matter what these enemies bring, we will not falter. We will stand. Because of your great name and presence, we will stand. And the prophet once again says to them, you will not need to fight, verse 17, in this battle. The Lord will fight for you. Stand firm. Hold your position. See the salvation of the Lord. You remember earlier, this wasn't just the leaders that were there. All the men, women, and children had gathered on the front lines to watch the salvation of the Lord. Parentheses, parents raising children. Do not insulate or cocoon your children from the salvation of God. Allow them to see his salvation front and center. Then we read in verse 21. Look at it with me. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army. What? This was God's uh, militaristic strategy. Hire the choir. I thought about this. And I'm not trying to be funny. It is funny in a, like, that's not a good militaristic strategy to have the choir go before you. But I've thought a lot about this in the context of this season. You can, you can go watch one of the videos I did months, uh, weeks ago called Canoeing the Mountains. And the idea behind the video and the book that, I, that came from that was that the church is going to have to think differently about her ways, her approaches, because of the culture and season that we're in. We're going to have to have different paradigms. So when I read this passage a couple weeks ago, and God set the choir out in front of the armies of Mount Seir and Ammon and Moab, I thought, this is a good illustration. Here's what I mean. We have one of the most powerful and talented and committed choirs in Lexington. No question. Can't wait till they're back here. What if, over the next few years, our paradigm shifted about the choir just a little bit? Yes, it is a group of people loaded with talent and beauty, as we've seen. But what if their singing was more than just a display of their God-given talent and beauty? Yes, this is also a group of people who love to worship God and lead his people to worship. But what if their singing was more than just corporate benefit for us? What if, based on this passage, we saw the choir as those weapons of warfare leading us, God's people, out onto the battlefield each week to declare salvation belongs to the Lord. And what if every time we stood with them, we were standing in the presence of God declaring the Lord reigns? This is the kind of paradigm just I'm talking about. This is how God intends to fight. Very unconventional, not the ways of men, not the ways of the world, but make no mistake, they were routed because a choir sang by faith. Last observation. Notice the reality 
of struggle. Verse 24. When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked to the horde, and there were dead bodies laying on the ground. For those of you who have a very safe view of the scriptures, this one will blow your categories. Dead bodies. The men, women, and children watched the stench of death as God delivered them. They did not hop around blissfully celebrating God's deliverance. They walked among dead bodies because God delivered them. Folks, the salvation of God is always glorious, but oftentimes it comes through struggle. Judah saw the intense struggle. This is true for us. We should stand firm and not fear, but the salvation of the Lord will not be easy. There will be struggle, maybe even death around us. All right, those are the observations. You can pull some of your own out. There's some more there. But let's apply it. Typically, the way I apply scripture to myself, this is the way my mind works, is I ask myself diagnostic questions. And so as I meditated on this passage the last week or so, these are the two diagnostic questions I asked myself that I'm just going to unpack for you. The first one, Will, what are you afraid of? Secondly, Will, what are you standing for? The first one, Will, what are you afraid of, demands that I name my fears because behind my fears is my enemy that I have to attack or that it's trying to attack me. Are you afraid of your health? Are you afraid of your finances? Are you afraid for your children? Are you afraid of your government? Are you afraid you will lose your rights? Are you afraid you'll not get the promotion? Are you afraid you'll never get married? Are you afraid your kids will reject Jesus? Are you afraid you will never have children? Are you afraid the pain of your past? Are you afraid of the disease of your future? Are you afraid of an invading nature? What are you afraid of? Name it, people. Name your fear. The call of God here is do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. The words here are important. The word afraid literally means do not give respect beyond what is due. What he's saying is don't fear those enemies because you're giving them too much respect. I rule, I reign, I conquer, not them. Don't fear. Don't give that enemy more respect. But then he quickly follows it up and says, and don't be dismayed. If you're like me, what happens when I get afraid is I then get anxious and I start calculating ways that I can figure out how to relieve my fear. And I create scenarios and situations and structures around my life to deliver myself. So he says, not only don't be afraid, but don't start crafting ways for yourself to be delivered. Don't be dismayed. So today God is asking us all to come out from behind whatever masks or structures or patterns or life decisions that are in place because I'm afraid. If your busy work schedule is just a mask for the fear of not being successful, come out from among that. If your kids' schooling choice is a mask for the fear of the world or a fear that they might not walk with Jesus, come out from that fear. If your political party is a mask for your fear of losing your country or your rights or your freedoms, come out from that mask. If your fear of not having enough money is hidden behind your bank account, your retirement, your plans, your greed, then come out. You see what I'm saying? When we are afraid, we will make masks to hide behind. And I'm saying, God is saying, name your fears. Because that's where he intends to do battle. 
which is the second diagnostic question. First, Will, what are you afraid of? Secondly, Will, what are you standing for? Do you need to stand for injustice and unrighteousness at work, in your family, or in your city? Do you need to stand for sexual purity on your phone, or computer, or in your relationships? Do you need to stand against greed and self-protection with your finances? Do you need to stand against pride and anger and disunity in your political affiliations? Do you need to stand against the temptation to post another social media rant? Do you need to stand against social injustices of race, sexuality, culture? Do you need to stand for the oppressed? Do you need to stand for peace and purity in the church? Do you need to stand for blank? The, 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 the nature of fear for this Judah people was not paralyzing. God moved them to action. And that action was to stand. But you know, again, the words matter. The word literally means to formally stand firm, to be in a state of firm inner strength as in a position of not running away. When I read that, I was like, I, I don't have that, God. <laughs> I'm I'm afraid. My knees are weak. My hands quiver. My mind betrays me. My heart is shallow. And you're saying stand with an inner strength against three armies? I feel overwhelmed. And so I'm going to do to you what I've done to myself over the last week. I know this sounds weird, but I looked myself in the eye. <laughs> I actually did in the mirror a couple of times. And I said, Will, You're a spiritual leader. You're a father. You're a pastor. I want you to look yourself, and I want you to look your congregation in the eye. And if I could look every one of you in the eye right now, and if I could look everybody online in the eye, this is what I would say to you. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go down there and take up your position and stand firm. You will not have to fight. The battle belongs to the Lord. And he will deliver you. By what authority does Will Witherington have to tell you that? John chapter 19 is my authority. John chapter 19, Jesus Christ is on the cross. And standing at the foot of the cross is his best friend, John, who called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, and four women, his mother and her friends, cousins. And they're standing and watching the salvation of the Lord on a bloody cross. And Jesus turns to John and says, behold your mother, and mother behold your son. And I started thinking, when Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself, what effect would that have had on John? He's standing there watching the salvation of the Lord. He is without question terrified. This is my friend. This is the one I've entrusted the last three years of my life to. This is the one who I've banked my eternity and the the prospect of a new world on, and he's dying. So after Jesus dies on the cross and raises from the dead three days later and John is a witness to that Jesus ascends to heaven and for the next 70 years this is what happened in John's life he would walk with his brother 
with his friend Peter and Andrew and Matthew and hundreds of others as they walked to their execution because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And then John himself would be exiled to the island of Patmos where he would see and record the revelation of Jesus. That song we sang, that passage we read and Josh read are John's writings about what he saw as the ultimate win of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And then John would come back from the island of Patmos at the age of 80 and he would go back to his home church in Ephesus. And history tells us that he sat under the pastoral ministry of Timothy. That's pretty cool. And in one recorded story, John is in his 80s, and John leads a young man to Christ. And over time, this young man's desire for the world and the cares of the world, the typical seed parable that Jesus gave, the man leaves his faith and he joins a gang of criminals. And John hears about this. John hears about this young man that he had led to Christ and had introduced him to the teachings of Christ and to the church and he hears that this young man is now out with a gang in the mountains in the hills of Asia Minor and this is how Eusebius records the night when John at age 82 mounted a horse and went to the woods in the dark of the night for the time being the young man waited armed as he was but as John approached he recognized him And filled with shame, he turned to flee. But John ran after him as hard as he could, forgetting his years and calling out, Why do you run away from me, child? From my own father, from your own father, unarmed and very old. Be sorry for me, child, not afraid of me. You still have hopes of life. I will account to Christ for you. If need be, I will gladly suffer death. For you, as the Lord suffered death for us to save you, I will give my own life. Stop, believe, Christ sent me. What compels an 82-year-old man to mount a horse, ride to the woods in the middle of the night, go after a lost prodigal, and run after him screaming like a crazy man? He heard his Savior say, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. Those words motivated John. His Savior motivated him. And may our Savior motivate us to stand and not be afraid. We're about to sing this this hymn. I invite you to look at it with me. I want to show you one of the lines. It would be great if we could take communion, wouldn't it, today? (laughs) Just pretend we are. The church's one foundation is the song. Look at the third stanza. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed, the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Friends, we're not at rest yet. We struggle. We have to hear our God, our leaders, our parents, our friends say, don't be afraid. Stand firm. But one day we will be at rest. 
Salvation belongs to the Lord. And every time we stand to sing, I pray you remember that, that we stand up on the battlefield that God has called us to, whatever it is, and we declare the Lord reigns. Let's pray. Oh God, strengthen us with this truth. We are weak, we are afraid, we don't know what to do, we are confused, we are perplexed, but you are not. You see with utter clarity the victory pathway. And Lord, as that pathway takes us through the valley of the shadow of death, I pray that you would teach us to fear no evil. For your rod and your staff, they comfort us. And keep before us the vision that you will lay out for us a table amongst our enemies and we will feast in the house of the Lord forever. And so, Lord, now, as we sing this song, help us to build our lives on the one foundation of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in his name we pray.